Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, Jonathan Goldhill here, and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. And today I have Rustam Desai, who has recently joined Cornell University's SC Johnson College of Business faculty after spending 25 years as a global technology executive with Corning Incorporated. Cornell is also where Rustam earned his MBA many years earlier following getting a degree in engineering from the Delhi College of Engineering. During his past 25 years, he has built and led businesses to scale in developed and emerging markets and across multiple tech markets, including semiconductors, consumer electronics, and optical communications. While living and working in the US, China, Taiwan, and India, Rustam has had the opportunity to create and in some cases dismantle strategic alliances of all flavors. Rustam has spent 20 years on public, private, and family business advisory boards. Through these and other career experiences, he has developed unique, up-close, and personal experience in the area of family-owned company governance and management, including that of his very own family business, which we're going to dive into with a presentation. So, Rustam, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. So, you know, let's start off with uh, an interesting question. Um, so you were at Corning, which is mm-hmm. arguably a, a technology slash manufacturing company, and mm-hmm. you're now on the faculty teaching about strategic alliances. And you've got to be asking yourself the question, why aren't there more families in tech? Why aren't there more family businesses that are tech? And and let's maybe put manufacturing aside and talk about that. So, so Rustin, why why what's the answer to this question? Do you think? Well, I think part of the answer lies in how we define tech in the year twenty twenty one. Right? It's uh, it's all about fast pace, quick turnover, short life cycle. Uh, sort of not the kind of environment where the patient money that family business is used to investing in, and so. What lands up being the source of funding in those spaces tends to be the VCPE type model of investor where they have a portfolio approach to doing business. It's just it's a different time in the evolution of tech. I'm sure at some point in the future, uh, families will participate very vibrantly and actively in tech. Will tech, have right to get, will tech have to just get very mature for that to happen? And does that mean that the returns from tech investments 
will no longer be what you know VCs and PE firms are looking for. I think what, what it's going to ha- what's going to happen in my assessment is the time frame of expected return versus the risk. Right, mm-hmm. family enterprise does brilliantly in a space where patient money is required. Uh, Wall Street is not patient. VC is not patient. PE is not patient. So when the funding requirements from these industries are going to require patient money, that's possibly the time where family money shows up to save the day. Okay. So patient working capital is the uh, is the words of family business. That's where the money comes from. And that's what you know, they're willing to stand at, wait for long returns, you know, long periods to get their return on investment. So very often, yes. All right. So you have an interesting family story to tell. And uh, I'm going to put some slides up here that we can share for those who are following along on uh, YouTube and want to watch this. Um, and that's the story of, of JRD Holdings, which uh, was uh, your family's business, if you will, uh, your father's uh, business. And so as I walk through some of these slides, uh, um, tell us a little bit about the history. I mean, some some of you might who are listening to this and are old enough might know the name Kelvinator because they were involved in uh, refrigerators and uh, home appliances in the United States. So, Kelvinator of India is a, is a slightly uh, is a related business, and uh, your dad joined as an employee in 1963. So, take us through the story here as I project these slides. For people who are listening. So my dad was an engineer by training, and he was in the early 60s invited to join this company called Kelvinator of India, which was formed by a combination of mostly Indian capital and technology that was acquired through a license agreement with Kelvinator in the US. Uh, He spent the next few years building the company up and also rose eventually to become CEO, acquiring a controlling stake in the company. And then eventually took it public as well. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, so this was happening, uh, tell us, like in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, Kelvinator is quite a big business. They had over 5,000 people and revenues of $120 million. That's right. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it was all about securing that position in the the refrigerator space where the company had greater than 50% share in the market, was one of only two players that was government mandated. And sort of moving into expanding the scope of the business into a variety of different, uh, you know, sometimes related, sometimes not related lines. For example, the manufacture of motor scooters in collaboration with a company out of Italy called Garelli, Mm -hmm. the manufacture of microwave ovens with White Consolidated, another U.S. company, and the manufacture of cash registers with a Japanese company called Omron. So he had alliances uh, written all through his DNA without perhaps knowing it. Interesting. You know, one of the things that I have taught clients around strategy is stealing a page from Jack Welch and General Electric's idea that you should either be number one or number two or or get out um, of that industry. Was Kelvinator, uh, they were number one in India in refrigerators. What about any of these others? Do you do you think or know if they were number one or number two in any of these, or if they had? They they were for they were first to market in cash registers. They were first Mm -hmm. to market in microwave ovens, Mm -hmm. and so they were market makers more than anything else. So they were absolutely positioned for number one, and that's a good segue to the next slide. Okay, awesome. So tell us. 
So what happens in the early 1990s is the Indian economy is on the verge of collapse. The government is forced to allow uh, foreign companies to invest money in India. My late father, Mr. Uh, J.R. Desai, has some choices to make. He says his choices are, do I have deep enough pockets to compete with the foreign investors that are going to show up? Do I want to you know, form an alliance with one of them or do I want to sell? And the choice he made at the time was, he said, I'm going to put this company out for sale. I think that it will be best managed as part of a global, deep-pocketed white goods company. And it's time for me to do that. And so he put it up for sale, eventually bought over by Whirlpool of the US. Mm -hmm. And then the sale proceeds went through to himself as a shareholder and to these investment companies that we'll talk about in a little bit. And of course, the public that held shares. Gotcha. And so um, walk us through the slide, proceeds of the sale and a web of entities. Uh, yes. So a lot so of the, a lot of the, sorry, go ahead. No, they were looking for their next big gig, it looks like. Correct. So a lot of the proceeds from the, the sale went into a group of companies that we eventually rechristened to be the JRD Holdings Group. Mm-hmm. And they had funds. Uh, my dad took a few of his senior executives from Calvinator over to the JRD group, and they started to look for the next big thing. The interesting thing from a family family business standpoint, though, was that there was really no succession plan. All three of his children, myself and my two sisters, were all professionals and hadn't at this point made a choice to change that in any way. And so as he looked as kind of the next big gig, he was looking at it by himself. Interesting. So... Now take us through, we're in the early 2000s, and what's going on in the business at this time? So he and his team are kind of looking to rebuild the grandeur of Galvanator. Um, they go through a few, uh, what I would call failed adventures, right? Different business ideas that were brought to them that they invested in and didn't turn mm-hmm. out to be the uh, the golden egg that they hoped they would be. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, unfortunately, my dad his health started to fail as well. And so it was just a, it was a bad time for him personally. And his vision of rebuilding the empire wasn't exactly panning out the way he had hoped it would. And you weren't leaving Corning to uh, go jump in and save your dad. And some family and, businesses do this, by the way, Rustam. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it or heard it. Like they, I, I've, they feel an obligation. And by the way, um, you know, what I've noticed and heard is that people maybe have, uh, uh, I don't know, of Indian descent feel more of a sense of obligation out of the culture uh, to their parents to do this. I, I've yeah. seen this with some Pakistani uh, um, and Filipino families. That the obligation to the family is very strong. So, Jonathan, you, you hit something that's very, very close to my heart. And one, one of the things I respect my dad for most is that as I was forming my opinion and my viewpoint as to whether or not I joined the family business. Uh, I always knew it was his heartfelt desire that I did, but he never forced it upon me. Mm. He would ask every now and then, hey, you know, have you thought of coming back and joining the business? And my answer at the time was always not now. It was never no. It was just not now. I got this one more thing to do, and I got this one more thing to do. Now, I realized in retrospect that it was a, not necessarily the best way of approaching saying no. Right. 
So, you know, when I'm talking to young uh, family business owners today, I'm, I'm, I'm always encouraging them to be thoughtful about what it is they really want mm-hmm. and to start that dialogue with family early. I think I made it difficult on my dad because I never gave him an unequivocal answer. And he still supported me through all of my various professional endeavors. But you were supporting him too, were you not? You started moonlighting to stop the bleeding that was going on in the, in the companies that they had invested in and the and the businesses. What, what was that like? I mean, so I was uh, fortunately, I guess, sent back to India on assignment to, to build, to, to start manufacturing and build a business for them in India. At the same time, my siblings and I were talking about, you know, the state of these family owned companies and how they really needed some help with direction setting. And in fact, it's my wife who continued to push me to start getting involved, you know, in my spare time of which I had none. (laughs) Um, And so I started to spend essentially weekends working with my dad and his team to try and first figure out what the hell was going on and then to try and find a path to improving the the status of those various companies. Right. And so uh, how let's well, let's talk about your plan. So it was restructure the business, align the family and maximize value and independence for the next generation. Tell us a little bit more about what what that looks like. Now, I, w- I will admit, it sounds a lot more focused when you put it on a slide, of course, at the time. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, my yeah, friend. Of course it is. And you can, you can always build a slide about the past. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> at the time, it smelled a lot more like just panic. Like, yeah. oh, my God, we've got to stop the bleed. So we kind of did three things. The first, I, you know, it, it's not a, necessarily in that order. But the first most important thing that I think we needed to do was my siblings and myself to get together and have a conversation with my dad that we're here to support you. We're going to try and do the best for you and for your business. Our objectives are not to take anything away from you. And I think that was important for him to hear it. He needed to hear it many times before he got comfortable with it, but eventually he did. And that's a lesson, by the way, that a lot of parents need to hear from the successor that we're not going to sell the family farm, so to speak. We're not going to, you know, pull, I'm going to use another metaphor here. We're not going to pull the wool out, you know, the rug out from underneath you, sorry, uh, or the wool over your eyes. Uh, So trust is a really big issue when going from one generation to the next. And I, I think Rustam that I'll say that that's probably the number one factor that inhibits the development of a written succession plan is the, the ability to get to that place where trust uh, and and like fairness, authenticity is is fully realized by all parties. You're you're so, you're so right because especially in my dad's situation, he had not had the opportunity to have any of us ever actually work in the family business, and here we show up with all kinds of opinions about what should and shouldn't be done with the business. And if I were him at that point, I would ask the question, where were you when I needed you? <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have an answer, but we were there at that time. And we were really committed to making sure, if for nothing else, just for the sake of you know, him spending his golden years in a state of sort of being positive and thinking positively about his life rather than going through uh, potentially cycles of failed businesses. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. So, so this is, so now we're at the place where 
JRD Holdings is formed. Right. Um, uh, walk us through the points on this slide, please. So we kind of rechristened uh, this web of companies, JRD Holdings, in, obviously in respect for our father. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a few enterprises that were being operated through these companies. We wound them all down. Uh, about 60% of the staff was asked to retire at that point. Uh, a lot of them had been his partners in crime in a very good way for you know over 40 years at that point. So that those weren't all easy discussions, but we thought it was best for the business and for them to have those discussions. We fundamentally stopped doing any trading activity in all of the companies. We focused all the capital and the investments on uh, putting them into marketable securities and sort of in, in the investment side until mm-hmm. such time that we may in the future have a plan to do something different. And then we we shifted the team capabilities from you know people going out there prospecting for trading opportunities to being people who can manage a family office. Yeah, interesting. So it, it it kind of turned away from being a web of trading companies to a an investment holding company type structure. And so it's an interesting transition when you go from an operating business to basically an investment management business and. Uh, the skills that got you there or here weren't necessarily going to be the same skills that are going to get you there. And the people that got you here aren't going to be the people that get you there. So uh, I imagine that can be pretty challenging for families going through the transition of exiting an operating company and forming an investment management company. For sure, Jonathan. And you've, you've seen this a bazillion times in your career. Family businesses have a special bond with their people. Mm-hmm. Right. And to to make decisions that appeared to be in the best interest of the family business, but not necessarily in the best interest of every individual that had been by my dad's side for 40 plus years was not easy. Sure. And not all of them bought into it. And, you know, that, that was tough. It was very tough on them, on us, on my dad. Yeah. And, I, you know, look, it sounds to me like with your background in strategic alliances uh, during the many years that you were at Corning, you were probably pretty good at reading the tea leaves here and knowing who was going to be a a good fit and who was not, um, or what businesses might be a good fit and what businesses were not. I mean, is that true? Do do you bring like a methodology to this sort of madness? (laughs) Well, you know, we all have the lenses through which we see opportunities, right? Sure, sure. And to me, the two major lenses that I looked at when I saw dad's portfolio at this time Mm -hmm. was, what are you doing that the other guy next door isn't doing? How are you bringing value in a way that somebody else can't? Right. A, and B, is there something here that can be enduring? Can, that can survive over time. And if the answer to those two is little or nothing and probably not a long time, not a great business to be in. Yeah. I mean, simply right. put, we, we call that like, do you have a unique value proposition or a unique course, selling proposition? And, yeah. and, you know, uh, is there something in the world, uh, Jim Collins, I think you should talk about that you can be the absolute best at um, right. that differentiates you. And this is a really hard thing for many companies uh, especially companies maybe that have been around for generations and companies that are just getting started uh, to identify. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So that that was kind of the lens, and it you know mm-hmm. it was as flawed as anybody else's lens would be, but like you know we we use that, and then of course we we also started to clearly document succession plans, and you know after my dad's passing, my siblings and I started to work very closely on what I call a governance agreement between the three of us to ensure that we found that right balance between giving each other flexibility. Uh, but also being, uh, you know, on the right side of good governance. And that's a balance that we continue to focus on today. And and do you have family meetings that, like, do you have a structured set of governance practices where the family gets together on a periodic basis? Because, or, you know, ideally, should this be happening? Because I think, again, you know, trust is what's the foundation of uh, any kind of agreement, no, no matter question. what, no question right? about it. Even in an acquisition, trust has got to be there. Um, no question um, about it. And uh, I think these are, you know, if you don't have regular governance meetings, trust can sort of wane because you're not checking For in sure. with each other. For sure. So there's a couple of things we do. One is that we've kind of distributed the roles and responsibilities across the three of us. And while we don't necessarily need a corporate structure per se or an org structure, uh, one of my sisters takes care of essentially people-related and administration-related issues. The other one takes care of legal issues, and I take care of what I would call investment and business-type issues. And so we, we, re- we our sandboxes are reasonably well-defined. Right. The second thing is we operate it as though it were a professional company with outside shareholders and stakeholders that may not necessarily be at the table. And what I mean by that is we have our regular cadence of board meetings. We have our regular cadence of annual general meetings, even mm-hmm. though it's just the three of us as the key stakeholders. Great. We we keep a very regular cadence to the discussions and the topics and so on and so forth. And that is just, that's the surface of it. That's and then one, one, one level down, you know, obviously we have an office and every time I'm in India, we, we have meetings in the office and we bring yeah. the whole team together and so on and so forth. So, yeah, we try and keep alignment. It's not always easy, but we try very hard. I think the other thing that's really hard and where things break down is communication. So let's, for instance, say you make a decision that you think, well, this doesn't really require communication, but but one of your siblings thought you should have communicated around that. Um, and, you know, it's you're laughing because I'm hitting a funny bone, I think. I mean, this is a hard thing to document and say, well, you need to discuss these things, but you don't have to bring these things to us. I mean, how do you deal with that? And by the way, you're, what, 12,000 miles away from them right now? I mean, so... Uh, uh, uh. Whatever the number is, I mean, yeah. So there was. Are, I would say that you know, as yeah. with as with most teams, there was kind of a you know forming process that we went through, mm-hmm. uh, and there were times when it wasn't very clear as to what should and shouldn't be communicated. And to the credit of, I think all three of us, when in doubt, we communicated more. Right. And then we gave the others the opportunity to say, "Hey, you really didn't need to tell us that." Right. I think it's you know, always good to over-communicate, you know. Yeah. So, and we, yeah. we're really focused on the trust stuff. We really are because it holds the family together. So mm-hmm. uh, if for no other reason, it holds the family together. Mm-hmm. But uh, look, I know this is something you're really passionate about. You've had experience with this, this, this generational transition. Um, and uh, these are hard conversations to have uh, with family members, with business uh, with employees, 
um, but it's really critical to the survival of the enterprise. So congratulations, first of all, oh, thank you. on thank navigating you. through that and uh, and understanding uh, what's really important to the family across those different generations. So, uh, so what's what's next for you now? So my strategy right now, at a personal level, sort of, you know, in terms of professional fulfillment, has a couple of legs. One is, of course, I, I teach at Cornell. I that's my alma mater, and I came back here last year to to teach at the business school. I really, really enjoy that. And that's something I'd like to continue to do. Uh, I'm also on a few boards and, you know, board work keeps me excited. And then there's always the possibility that at some point between now and the end of time, either myself or one of my siblings drum up a brand new idea of how we're going to change the world. And we use the, you know, the JRD holding structure to, to make that life changing, changing, you know, step into a new business. Yep. So there's always the possibility of that. I just can't tell you today what that might be or when. Yeah, but we're looking and I'm sure one of us is going to find something. Can you talk to me and our listeners around uh, ownership, governance and management? Um, I had a couple of interesting speakers. One uh, an earlier podcast was with uh, Josh Barron, uh, who just wrote a book called The Family Business Handbook. And we talked on the podcast about like the four different rooms that conversations need to be had. Like one is the ownership room. Like uh, we don't talk about management stuff in the ownership room. One is the management room. You know, uh, can you talk to us about what your thoughts are on how to how to divide uh, or put the right conversation in the right room so that there isn't this lack of clarity blending of boundaries, confusion uh, of roles. What, what are some of your thoughts? I mean, uh... I'd say as a, as a second generation family, we're currently learning our way through those boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, we're very aware that they exist. We don't always get them exactly right. Yeah. And so when, you know, there's been a time when we've been trying to think of how can we simplify the ownership structure? And we spend a lot of time and focus on that. Many months pass by, we realized it's just, there's no economical way to simplify the structure. So that was in the ownership bucket. And we generally kept the conversation in the ownership bucket. Right. When you're talking about governance versus management, it's a little bit more difficult to do when your scope is only investment. Mm -hmm. We still try and manage it that, you know, the three of us as one third owners are here to govern, we're not here to manage. But it's very difficult to ma manage that diaphragm between governance and management when it comes to just investment companies, because all we really have is a family office at this point. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we do overstep a little bit. And then, you know, one of us, one of the other will say, hey, is that really our job? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we have a dialogue about it. Yeah. So I, as I said, we're, we're learning what the boundaries are, but it's very important to have those be clear, especially when we, as a family, start talking about what's in it for the next generation, right? We haven't got to that yet. That's when the ownership governance management piece is going to become really, really important. Super important. So I think one of the one of the tools of my trade uh, is the concept of an accountability chart. Um, it's a little bit different than an organization chart because the organization chart typically just outlines who's in what roles and what they're doing. The accountability chart and and this was sort of loosely taken from the scaling up Gazelle's community and EOS uh, mm -hmm. traction. 
communities. But the concept that there is a particular role and there are, you know, uh, maybe four, three to five uh, role, key roles, particular function, let's say, and three to five key roles that someone does in that. And the, I, the notion is that each one of these organizations, the management organization, the governance organization, the ownership organization, ought to have its own separate accountability chart. Accountabilities. With, with everyone being pretty clear about what are the handful of key roles that they play in that function. So, right. So when clearly as an owner in a business, typically you have a secretary, you have a treasurer, you have a president, what are the key roles? And those are different than, you know, let's say you guys do it by an operating company. You're no longer the president, treasurer, and secretary. You know, one person might be the president. Two people might not even be involved in the operating company. What's not at all. So, right. yeah. so I think it's really, I like the idea and the notion that, each one of these uh, sort of rooms, as I talked about earlier, might have would have its own accountability chart, and the you know that's the, a really fascinating idea, actually. Um, yeah, maybe right? we could talk about this a little bit more. Yeah, after the podcast, of course. But <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, definitely a great idea. All right, let's talk about some of the lessons that you've learned. Uh, you you had a career with a Fortune 500 company, you negotiated, managed, and governed. Uh, joint ventures with family enterprises across the globe. And you sit on the boards of some family enterprises in, in India. What are some lessons that you think are unique to these types of companies? You know, you, you spoke about one in, this, in the last few minutes, which is it is so important, especially as you get bigger and as you go from first to second to third generation, it is so important to have open discussions about ownership, management, and governance. Mm -hmm. uh, families often resist doing that for, for a variety of different reasons. And that just builds up over time. The lack of clarity builds up over time. So the families that I've seen that continue to have, you know, enduring success generation after generation are really clear about those three things and have them well documented. Um, the other piece that I find really interesting is that uh, when you're negotiating with a family enterprise, it's a vastly different experience than when you're negotiating with a with a company of professionals that's widely held. Mm -hmm. the The skin in the game is different. the The timeline around which um, success is measured is different, and very often reputation effect plays a big big part. Uh, family enterprises, especially are particularly sensitive to the kind of company that they land up aligning with and how it would project their image into whatever they consider to be their stakeholder base. So those are two important things. And they're universal. You see them everywhere in the world. Sure, sure. I was just on a call with uh, Alice Hyman, who's going to join me on a future podcast. Oh, um, she's from the Miller-Hyman family, uh, right. which was a very successful, I'm sure you know it, because they were like the Fortune 500 like sales training company. Um but it, it's, uh, it's really interesting because we were talking about managing the complex sale. And I, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've been exposed to this concept because when you're selling Fortune 500 to another large company, there's multiple decision makers. Oh. Um, some of them are gatekeepers. Some of them are bureaucrats. Some of them are stakeholders. And in families, it's not so clear like exactly what the roles are that some of these different family members play as stakeholders. Um, but it does seem like 
uh, a joint venture, an exit, a relationship with a family business does require some complexity in terms of managing that sale. For sure. I mean, it's, you know, there's a combination of, you know, something being family owned and at the same time, perhaps being, let's say, based in Asia versus, versus being based in the U.S. that creates nuances. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've heard this a billion times. I'm not sharing any anything groundbreaking here, but the importance of the unofficial channel of communication is so much more important in a family business than it is in, you know, a, a widely held professionally run business. Right. You know, just make sure you have the right and open unofficial channels with the people that are really making the decision, not necessarily the ones that are sitting in front of you. Exactly. All right, they so, may be the same, but not always. Yep. All right. So uh, as we start to wind this down, I want to go back to the family business. You you watched your dad, a tremendously successful guy, obviously, rose through the ranks and you knew up growing, you were the successor of a family business, but you chose a career as a professional instead. And uh, talk to me about the conversation with yourself and your family around that decision. What was, what was that like? In retrospect, I would say that I'd be really proud if I turned out to be a little bit like him. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean fiercely independent, willing to take some risk, and ready to chart my own path in life, right? Mm-hmm. And at least at the beginning of my career, I, I think I was all of those three things. And that drew that pulled me away from the family business because I, I didn't see myself having enough independence in that environment. And as I pointed out earlier, my dad, uh, I think he always wished that I'd made different choices, but he n- never thrust them on me. Never once did he thrust them on me. He, he was always welcoming of my big next big gig, at least in my eyes. He was the big guy. I was, <laughs> I was a you know junior employee in a Fortune 500 company in upstate New York, but he celebrated my victories with me. So I'm sure I, you I, had a pretty illustrious career with Corning, uh, no <laughs> slouch of a Fortune 500 company. Uh, that is right. True. An innovator, a tech leader. Uh, I'm guessing they hold maybe as many patents as uh, 3M or you know, or companies like that. So, and as, as you pointed out earlier, number one or two in every industry that we choose to play in. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. For so, sure. all right. And so any final thoughts on maybe what inspired you to take the lead and transitioning your own family business to the next generation, and maybe some challenges or learnings or, you know, any other thoughts about what we were talking about? Well, I think the, the choice to to sort of enter at the time when I did was partly serendipity. I was there, mm-hmm. and partly driven by the fact that I just I I felt that it was my time to contribute. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It didn't come from a place of guilt. I'm not very good in the guilt space. Mm-hmm. It was from a place of there is a need here, and I think for once in my life, my capability set and the need set have a significant overlap in the Venn diagram. So why don't we do something about this? Um, And so that kind of was the trigger to first join. And really this theme and this thread of family-owned business and how much I've engaged in it didn't really become obvious to me until I separated myself from Corning and found myself teaching and talking to people around me. And they're like, well, that's family business. Oh, that's family business. And I started to connect the dots. And I said, you know, it's funny, but I look back. And I've had so many different flavors of interaction with this concept of family enterprise uh, that I might not think of too. So here we are. 
Yeah. And so, you know, I had the similar experience where I worked with so many businesses that I called entrepreneurial small businesses. And then I started to recognize, wait, there was more than two members of the enterprise uh, stakeholders that were, you know, in, you know, from the family. And, um, and a lot of times, sometimes just a, a small business might have a, a you know, person might have a spouse involved in some of the decision-making and, and because right. of, uh, I guess, common law, right. That, uh, or joint property, at least in California, I'm sure many other States, um, you know, the spouse owns half the business unless you put it in a, in a trust or, or, you know, unless stated otherwise, up. which would be an yeah. interesting discussion anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Love so, you, but you don't own anything. Right. So, well, this has been a thoroughly enjoyable time spent talking with you. I think you're a fascinating man. I think your story is really interesting. I, I wish you great success um, at the faculty of Cornell. I'm sure you add a lot of value. And Cornell, by the way, people should know, has one of the leading family business school programs in the country and does some great research in that space. And, and I had really a is. speaker, uh, Dan Vanderfleet, um, who is maybe head of the family business program is one of my early. He, he does run the Smith guests. family business initiative. Yeah. Yeah. He so, runs it. He's a yeah. great guy. Does a good, lot of great work. Fantastic. Yeah. So Rustin, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. It was fun. All right. All right. So thank you very much, folks. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with others, uh, family businesses or, or otherwise. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.